So in the ongoing process of the Dispatches from the Forest World Headquarters relocation, we spent the last couple of weeks in Bethesda, Maryland. Now, one thing that the greater Washington, D.C. metro area has going for it, as far as large urban areas go, is that there's a lot of green space. And in fact, I'm recording right next to one of the trails that is right behind the Airbnb where we're staying. So you might actually hear um, some other uh, trail users passing by. Now, the stream valleys around here have been preserved for stormwater runoff, and in a lot of these places, there's recreational paths that run right through these areas, too, which makes them not only good habitat, but excellent corridors for a variety of wildlife. Now, one of the largest of these corridors, and very close to where we're staying, is the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal and its associated towpath. Stretching 185 miles between Washington, D.C. and Cumberland, Maryland, the CNO Canal, which was sometimes called the Grand Old Ditch, has a rich history. It passes through some really interesting geography, and it's home to a variety of wildlife. So today I want to tell you a little bit about the history of the canal itself, and I'll tell you about three species of heron that I've had the good fortune to observe while enjoying some dirt therapy along the canal path. So let's get into some history and some herons. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now I have no doubt that I could devote an entire episode to the history of the CNO Canal, but... This isn't a history podcast now, is it? But still, the history of the canal is interesting, and as it exists today, nearly a century after shutting down, the CNO is essentially a 185-mile-long wetland habitat that helps support a variety of species. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of the canal, just so you know how and why it came to be there. Now, the primary purpose of the canal was to transport coal south from the Allegheny Mountains, although plenty of other goods were moved both up and down the canal during its heyday. Construction began in 1828, and it took 22 years to fully complete. The entire 185-mile stretch wasn't completed until 1850. And the CNO is a pretty impressive feat of engineering and construction, especially when you consider the technology available in the 1800s. It consists of 74 locks that allowed canal boats to navigate the 600-foot elevation difference between D.C. and Cumberland. It also required the construction of 11 aqueducts to cross major streams, over 240 culverts to cross smaller streams, and the Paw Paw Tunnel, which is nearly three quarters of a mile long and took 12 years to build. And technically, this 185-mile stretch only comprised a little over half of what was originally planned. Two more sections, another 155 miles or so, stretching to the Ohio River at Pittsburgh, was planned but never built. The canal started operating, at least on the part that was built, in 1831. And now while there's some steamboats that were used on the canal, the majority of boats were towed along the canal by mules, and that's where the towpath comes in. It's literally the path alongside the canal that the mules used to pull the boats. Mules were preferred to horses because they were both cheaper and less prone to illness and injury. 
A mule team consisted of two to three mules, and each canal boat had two teams so they could work in shifts, rotating every eight hours. It's estimated that two to three thousand mules were in service, pulling the four to five hundred boats using the canal in any given year. When not working, the mules lived in stables on the boat itself. A mule team could pull a boat an average of three miles an hour, and a typical trip down the canal from Cumberland to D.C. took four to five 18-hour days. The CNO operated for 93 years, shutting down in 1924 after a catastrophic flood caused major damage. Now, this wasn't the first time the canal had been shut down by floods, but by 1924, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had taken most of the canal's business, so it was the final nail in the canal's coffin. Another flood in 1936 further damaged the abandoned canal, and in 1938, it was purchased from the bondholders by the U.S. government. In 1939, the Civilian Conservation Corps was put to work restoring the first 22 miles of the canal, and it became the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Park. Because the canal stretches from the coastal plain of Washington, D.C. to the mountains of western Maryland, it's considered to be one of the most biodiverse of all the national parks. Now, granted, I've only seen a fraction of the canal and its associated towpath. My experience has been limited to a 16-mile stretch between locks 5 and 22, about miles 4 and 20. But even in that stretch, the variability of the terrain is amazing. Somewhere around mile 10, the terrain becomes much rockier, with large rock faces bordering the canal and a steep drop down to the Potomac River. The Great Falls of the Potomac are located around mile 14. The canal itself varies too. In some places, it's wide and shallow, generally only a few feet deep, but in others, it's little more than just a marsh. But again, that variability serves to support a high degree of biodiversity. Now, even in my limited time and limited range along the canal, I've observed a lot of wildlife. I saw deer drinking in the shallows, turtles basking in the sun, heard a lot of cicadas buzzing in the trees, and my wife found a Carolina mantis when we visited the Great Falls. But what I want to tell you about today, and it's a species I've been looking for an excuse to talk about anyways, are the herons. The canal is perfect habitat for herons, and I observed three different species, and once even saw them all on the same day. The great blue heron, the black-crowned night heron, and the green heron. Now I'll start with the great blue heron because it's probably the most commonly seen and easiest to identify. Now herons are wading birds, and the great blue heron is the largest heron native to North America, and for the record, third largest in the world. They average four to four and a half feet tall, with a five and a half to six and a half foot wingspan, and weigh between four and eight pounds. In flight, I think they look like pterodactyls. Males tend to be slightly larger than females, but otherwise males and females look the same. I don't think most people appreciate how beautiful these birds really are. They have gray-blue flight feathers, reddish-brown thighs, and a pair of reddish-brown and black stripes up their flanks. Their neck is a rusty gray, with black and white streaking down the front. Their head is paler, with a nearly white face, and a pair of black or slate-colored plumes run from just above the eye to the back of the head. The feathers on the lower neck are long and plume-like also, and they have plumes on their lower back at the start of the breeding season. The bill is a dullish yellow, but turns more orange for a brief time at the start of the breeding season. The lower legs are gray, but they also become orange at the start of the breeding season. 
Now, great blue herons are found throughout North America, as far north as Alaska and the southern Canadian provinces in the summer. In winter, their range extends south through Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean, as far as northwestern South America. From the southern United States southward and on the lower Pacific coast, they're year-round residents. East of the Rocky Mountains, blue herons are usually migratory in winter, but they might not migrate if there's shallow open water available where they can find prey. Great blue herons are usually solitary feeders. Since they're primarily a wading bird, great blue herons feed heavily on fish, with a preference for those between 4 and 8 inches long, although they can eat fish up to 2 feet in length. But that said, they're opportunistic hunters, and they'll take just about anything they can get a hold of, including frogs, lizards, snakes, insects, small mammals, and even other birds. Herons locate their food by sight, and they swallow it whole. Sometimes, though, their eyes are bigger than their bills, and they've been known to choke on prey that's too big. Typically, great blue herons feed in shallow water, less than two feet deep, and at the water's edge. They're known to hunt both at night and during the day, but they're especially active at dawn and dusk. The most commonly used hunting technique for a great blue heron is wading slowly through shallow water and quickly spearing fish or frogs with their long, sharp bill. But great blue herons are adaptable in their hunting methods. Feeding behaviors can consist of standing in one place and waiting for prey to come by, probing, pecking, walking slowly, moving quickly, flying short distances, hovering over the water and picking up prey, diving headfirst into the water, jumping from a perch, and even swimming or floating on the surface. Now, while they're solitary hunters, great blue herons breed in colonies, called a heronry or a rookery, that can range anywhere from five nests to 500, but the average is about 160. Nests are made up of sticks and built in trees near lakes or other wetlands. Tall trees in swamps or on islands are preferred because they're less accessible to predators. Nests can be anywhere between two and four feet wide and three feet deep. I always find it amusing to see these long-legged waders perched in trees. They look really out of place. Nests are often reused from year to year, but mates are not. Great blue herons are monogamous within the breeding season, but they choose new mates each year. Males arrive at the rookery first and settle on a nest, usually a different one each year, and from there they court the females. In the early spring, the female lays three to six pale blue eggs. Eggs are usually laid at two-day intervals, and incubation takes about 27 days. Males help with incubation, sitting on the eggs for about 10 and a half hours every day, while females are on egg duty for the rest of the day and the night. Eggs are left without incubation for about six minutes an hour. Eggs hatch asynchronously over several days. The first chick to hatch becomes more experienced in handling food and aggressive interactions with its siblings, so it tends to grow more quickly than the other chicks. Both parents feed the young at the nest by regurgitating food, and parent birds consume up to four times more food when they're feeding young chicks. By the time they're six weeks old, the chicks are about 85% of their adult weight. They leave the nest when they're two to two and a half months old, but return to the nest to get fed for about another three weeks, following adults back from the foraging grounds. Heron chicks gradually disperse away from their original nest over the course of the next winter. Black-crowned night herons, or just night herons, are slightly smaller than great blue herons with correspondingly shorter legs. 
Adult night herons have a black crown and back with the remainder of the body white or gray, red eyes, and short yellow legs. They have pale gray wings and white underparts. Two or three long white plumes erected in greeting and during courtship displays extend from the back of the head. Black-crowned night herons don't fit the typical body form of the heron family. They're relatively stocky and compact, with shorter bills, legs, and necks than their more familiar cousins. When not hunting, they tend to tuck their neck against their body, giving them kind of a hunchback look. On average, they're about two and a half feet long, weigh a little over two pounds, and have a wingspan just under four feet. The breeding habitat of night herons is fresh and saltwater wetlands throughout much of the world. Like great blue herons, night herons are migratory in the northernmost part of their range, but are otherwise year-round residents, even in the cold parts of Patagonia. North American night herons winter in the southern United States, Mexico, Central America, and the West Indies. On a side note, a colony of night herons has regularly summered at the National Zoo here in Washington, D.C. for more than a century. European birds winter in tropical Africa and southern Asia. Night herons hunt by standing still at the water's edge, waiting to ambush prey, mainly at night or early in the morning. Like great blue herons, they're opportunistic hunters, and they'll eat anything they can catch. But interestingly, they're one of seven heron species that engage in bait fishing, luring or distracting fish by tossing buoyant objects, either edible or inedible, into the water within their striking range, a rare example of tool use among birds. When not hunting, they roost in trees or bushes. Like their great blue cousins, night herons form rookeries. Sometimes they'll even mix in with a great blue heron rookery. The male chooses a nest site in a tree or in cattails, usually in a habitat safe from predators, again like an island or in a swamp or over water, and then advertises for a female with displays that involve bowing and raising the long plumes on his head. The male starts building the nest, a platform of sticks, twigs, and other woody vegetation that he collects from the ground or breaks right off the trees. Once he's found a mate, the male continues collecting material but passes it to the female who then works it into the nest. Nests are a foot to a foot and a half wide and 8 to 12 inches deep. Females lay three to five eggs, which are incubated for about three and a half weeks. And again, both parents incubate the eggs and brood the chicks greeting each other with calls and raised feathers when switching over duties. The young leave the nest when they're only about a month old and move through the vegetation on foot, forming nocturnal flocks and feeding areas. They learn to fly at about six weeks old, and then they disperse widely. Now finally we come to the smallest of the herons I want to tell you about, the green heron. Green herons are small, body length is only about 18 inches maximum, and the wingspan is just over two feet. Adults have a glossy greenish-black cap, a greenish back, and wings that are gray-black grading into green or blue. The neck is chestnut-colored with a white line down the front. Underparts are gray, and they have short yellow legs. The bill is dark with a long, sharp point. Now, the neck is often pulled in tight against the body, giving them a compact shape, but not quite as humpbacked as the night herons. The habitat of green herons are small wetlands in low-lying areas. They're seen most often at dusk and dawn, but if anything, they're more nocturnal than they are diurnal, preferring to retreat to a sheltered area in the daytime. They'll hunt actively during the day if necessary, though, 
or when they have chicks to feed, and green herons living in coastal areas adapt their hunting to the rhythm of the tides. Now the one I saw on the CNO was spotted mid-morning, but on an overcast rainy day. In terms of spotting green herons, it doesn't help that while larger herons tend to stand prominently in open parts of wetlands, green herons tend to be on the edge in shallow water or even concealed in vegetation. Like the other two species of heron I've talked about, they feed mainly on fish, frogs, and aquatic arthropods. But again, they're not picky, and they'll eat anything they can, literally choke down, including spiders, rodents, and snakes. Green herons typically stand still on shore or in shallow water, or perch on branches above the water and wait for prey. They can also hover briefly to catch prey, and they're known to dive underwater to catch prey and then swim back to shore. Webbing between their middle and outer toes helps facilitate this. And, like the night heron, they're known to drop food, insects, or other small objects like feathers on the water's surface to attract fish. Green herons, though seldom seen, are actually pretty widespread. They breed in most of the United States, east of the Rocky Mountains, from southern Canada to the Gulf Coast, as well as in a small area along the coast of the Pacific Northwest. In the fall, they migrate south into Mexico, Central America, and northern South America. They migrate north again in late winter or early spring, usually at night and in large flocks. But even in places like the southern U.S. where green herons don't migrate, they abandon their territories after the breeding season to roam around. They may or may not return to the same breeding area depending on whether they found someplace better on their wanderings. For non-migratory green herons, breeding season is determined by rainfall and the subsequent availability of prey. Like their blue and night heron cousins, green herons are seasonally monogamous. Pairs form in the breeding range after an intense courtship display by the male, who, again, picks the nesting site and starts building a nest. He then flies in front of the female, making a bunch of noise and puffing up his head and neck plumage. After pairing, the female takes over nest construction. The male gathers long, thin sticks, and the female shapes them into a nest that's 8 to 12 inches wide and averages less than 2 inches deep. Green herons will sometimes renovate an old nest, or they'll build in the old nest of a black-crowned night heron or snowy egret. Occasionally, they'll take sticks from a nearby old nest and refashion them into the new one. Regardless, they keep adding sticks to the nest throughout the breeding season. Now, unlike blue herons and night herons, green herons only rarely form rookeries. A typical clutch is two to six pale green eggs laid at two-day intervals. Both parents help incubate for about three weeks until hatching, and both parents help feed the chicks until they fledge. Chicks might begin leaving the nest when they're just over two weeks old, but they can't fly or fend for themselves until they're about a month old. While the population of great blue herons and black-crowned night herons are considered to be relatively stable, green heron populations appear to be declining, and sharply. Between 1996 and 2015, green heron population dropped by about 51%. Now, in the past, green herons were hunted for food, and their numbers were controlled near fish hatcheries because they were thought to be a threat to the fish. But why their larger cousins weren't persecuted in the same way, I have no idea. 
Today, they're negatively impacted by habitat loss from draining and development of wetlands. But the full extent of this impact is unclear because these herons are solitary, they're widely dispersed, and their tendency to wander makes it more difficult to study them. But that's what makes a wetland habitat like the historic CNO Canal even more important to preserve. And with that, I'll bring this episode to a close. Thank you for listening. Make sure to click on those like and follow or subscribe buttons. It costs nothing and it helps me out a lot. If you want to support future episodes of the podcast, here's how to do that. Check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and also how you can contact me if you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode. You can also get yourself, or someone else, it doesn't matter to me, some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. The Dispatches from the Forest merch store can be found at cafepress.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest. There's all kinds of stuff there. I'm sure you'll find something you like. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.